Chapter 4. Seven women will take hold of one man in that day and say, and that day is again the day of judgment. So that's how we know when that will happen. That same day of judgment. When the men are killed, as in chapter 3, verse 25. By whom? Well, by the invading Assyrians, by the Assyrian armies that come through and invade and destroy the land and overthrow its people. In that context, since there will be a shortage of men, seven women will take hold of one man in that day. That's the context. Don't forget that. Seven women will take hold of one man in that day and say, we will eat our own food and wear our own clothes, meaning that they have enough, which shows you immediately that these are righteous women, women who are not under the covenant curse. Because the other guy, what did he say? He said, there's neither food nor clothing in my house. You cannot make me a leader of the people. So this is a different category of people. The seven have a meaning. Well, it's multiple. It's always a number that implies multiplicity like 7 times 7 or 70 times 7, things like that. It could be 6 or it could be 8. I mean, he's not so literal. You never take him totally literally like that. Say it has to be 7. No, it does not. The point is that this is a kind of a phenomenon. If he would say many women will take hold of one man, that would leave it totally up to speculation. So these have enough food to eat and enough clothes to wear, right? They're not going to burden their husbands with that, only let us be called by your name, take away our reproach. That is, in other words, marry me, because my reproach is that I am not fulfilling the measure of my creation by raising up children to God. So, let me be called by your name. I'll be your wife. Now, what kind of man do they approach? Any old man? <laughs> no, they don't. Isaiah identifies exactly what kind of man that they go to and say that to. They've already had experience with the other men that have been killed by the sword. In that day, the plant of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the earth's fruit, the pride and glory of the survivors of Israel. So it's identifying survivors. We saw survivors of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Earlier, people of Zion were like those who survived the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we'll see that again and again. Now, the plant of the Lord is another metaphor identifying the Lord's servant here and in other places in the Hebrew prophets. The Lord's servant is a plant of the Lord. And he's paralleled with the earth's fruit, the first fruits of the earth, as it were, in the millennium. This is the millennial context. These are all those who survived the destruction in that day, the day of judgment. They will be beautiful and glorious because of their righteousness. They'll not be ignominious like the men and the women that had done evil. These will be exalted, the survivors of Israel. Then shall they who are left in Zion and they who remain in Jerusalem, there's that word left again, which identifies survivors or a remnant that survives or that remains, be called holy. They who are left in Zion and they who remain in Jerusalem be called holy. These are the survivors of Israel. Not all Israel is spared, but only the category called Zion or Jerusalem. They're spared. Zion in Isaiah is both a people and a place. It is those who repent, as we saw earlier, chapter 1, verse 27, those of Israel who repent. It is also a safe place, as in this chapter, verse 5. It's a place of safety and protection. 
It is a place to which those who repent return home. In Hebrew, the word for repent is the same word as return. Those who repent of sins and are forgiven also return physically. Those who spiritually return also physically return. They return home from exile, from dispersion, from scattering to Zion in an exodus. Who are they? The holy ones. They shall be called holy or saints or sanctified ones. Like the holy one of Israel, the sanctified one of Israel, the saint of Israel, whichever way you want to translate it. So are these, holy like he's holy. Then shall they who are left in Zion and they who remain in Jerusalem be called holy, all who were inscribed to be among the living at Jerusalem. In other words, not among the dead. Their names are inscribed. Inscribed is used there in the sense of inscribing in a book. Their names are written in the book of life. We would say the Lamb's book of life. So those who physically survive that day are those who spiritually qualify. Those are the ones whom the seven women take hold of. This shall be when my Lord has washed away the excrement of the women of Zion. What's the excrement of the women of Zion? Well, that's what we saw in the last part of chapter 3. All that finery, all that stuff of theirs that was a stumbling block to themselves and to the men that caused the breakdown of society, in fact. It seems to be that when the women capitulate, finally, the men always do so anyway. But when the women do, then that's the end. This is the way he structured this here. This shall be when my Lord has washed away the excrement of the women of Zion and cleansed Jerusalem of its bloodshed. There we have the sin of the women and the sin of the men, both. In the spirit of justice by a burning wind. There we have justice again. No mercy, just justice. Why? For those who didn't repent. Those who didn't repent cannot come under the law of mercy, so they have to come under the law of justice and suffer all these calamities. The burning wind. Whenever we have storm imagery like that, in the book of Isaiah, as we do in this chapter, chapter 4, it implies the day of judgment. Also, you find it in other scriptures, like if you're founded upon the rock and the storm comes and, and the lightnings and the thunders and they beat upon that house that stands upon the rock, it will stand, right? That storm imagery is directly related to the day of judgment in the book of Isaiah and in the other Hebrew prophets. The burning is done by the king of Assyria, all through Isaiah. Those who survive that will survive the cleansing that's coming, the cleansing of the wicked. Over the whole side of Mount Zion and over its solemn assembly, there Zion is a place, a place of protection. For whom? For those who participate in the solemn assembly. In other words, for the righteous. Anciently, we had, in Moses' organization of Israel, the people in general, then we had the congregation within that, and then we had the tabernacle, and then we had the Holy of Holies within the tabernacle. We had degrees, physical degrees of access to God, or the lack thereof, representing actual spiritual categories of people. And so it is here, this represents a category of people, those who participate in a solemn assembly, who have access to God. Over the whole side of Mount Zion and over its solemn assembly, the Lord will form a cloud by day and a mist glowing with fire by night. What we call the cloud of glory, which signifies the Lord's presence with his people. 
Anciently, that cloud of glory accompanied the Israelites on their exodus from the land of Egypt to the Sinai wilderness until eventually they came to the promised land. And when Solomon built the temple, it stood upon the temple, signifying the Lord's presence in the temple. Whether it did so continually all the time, I'm not sure, but it certainly did so a lot of the time. When a Jew gets married, the man and the woman stand underneath the canopy. You've seen it in the movie Fiddler on the Roof. That canopy symbolizes the presence of the Lord with them. He's the third partner in the marriage. Is a partnership with God as well as with themselves. Above all that is glorious shall be a canopy. There's the word canopy. And that canopy refers to the cloud of glory, but also to the idea of a marriage canopy. So, when it says, over the whole side of Mount Zion, over its solemn assembly, the Lord will form a cloud by day and a mist blowing a fire by night. Above all that is glory shall be a canopy. What's he saying? He's saying that at that time, when that solemn assembly takes place, or that collection of people who gather in an exodus, as we learn elsewhere, to this safe place, Zion, when they assemble there, what do they do? They just stand around. They renew the covenant with the Lord, the marriage. They renew the covenant with the Lord. They reestablish their covenant with God. Perhaps even before they come, they do that on one level. But certainly at that time. In Isaiah's scenario, the Lord makes a covenant with his people after the destruction, a new covenant that embodies all the positive features of the former covenants the Lord has made with his people or with individuals. And it could be a reference to that covenant, but certainly the idea of a canopy implies not only protection, as in this case, but also the renewal of the covenant between the Lord and his people, whatever form that may take. A cloud by day and a mist glowing with fire by night. What happened anciently when uh, the cloud covered the Israelites was that the Egyptians could not penetrate the cloud to harm the Israelites. Nor could the Israelites go through the cloud to the Egyptians. It served as a barrier between the two. Here it says, verse 6, It shall be a shelter and shade from the heat of the day, a secret refuge from the downpour and from rain. What will be? The canopy. What canopy? The cloud of glory. It's going to be a shelter and shade from the heat of the day. You remember the watchman's hut, the shelter in the vineyard that we saw earlier? This is it. That's a word link to this verse. That's the shelter. That's how we get survivors. It talked about survivors there too, didn't it? Had not the Lord of hosts left us a few survivors? It says in chapter 1, verse 9. It talks about the shelter in the vineyard in chapter 1, verse 8. Well, there's some word links there to chapter 4, aren't there? So we get more of an idea now of just how that protection is going to happen during that time. I suppose that if you were covered by the cloud of glory, you'd be invisible even from the air, wouldn't you? You'd be protected from the outside. And this kind of outlines how God intervenes to protect his righteous people. This is direct divine intervention. This is not just protection by defending yourselves against your enemies like the people did under Moses. Sometimes when they fought the wars, conquering the promised land, and the nations of Canaan that were in a state of wickedness, they fought against them. This is not like that. That was protection also, but here it's direct protection by divine intervention. The Lord is actually there. The heat of the day, shelter and shade from the heat of the day. The day is the day of judgment, and the heat is the day of burning the Sodom and Gomorrah heat. 
the fiery destruction of the wicked, that the righteous survive. Now also later on we'll see the word shelter and shade used in another sense, where people rely upon Pharaoh and his armies as a shade and shelter. In chapters 30 and 31, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, provides a shelter and shade because he has vast forces of chariots and horsemen and the smaller nations of the world look for protection to Pharaoh and these armies against Assyria. But that's an arm of flesh. And the arm of flesh does not provide shelter in the end. It's a false shelter. So those terms have a good connotation and an evil connotation. This is the Lord's shelter, which is the true shelter. A secret refuge from the downpouring from rain, like I said, they'll not even be visible to others. The downpouring rain is again storm imagery. In this case, it would be a Sodom and Gomorrah type of downpour. A rain of fire and brimstone from the sky or some equivalent. It's an allegory. All through the book of Isaiah, Isaiah uses storm imagery to identify the king of Assyria's destruction.